This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. Welcome to Chapter 15, in which we revisit Grim Bolivar and the world of Prospect. We want to always remind you at the top of the show that our primary sponsor is El Yucateco. And we say this not just out of the devotion that a podcast has to its sponsor, but out of the love that people who eat food have of a delicious food product. Our relationship with El Yucateco spans over more than one podcast and over several years and a couple of taco businesses. And uh, we really do love the product or we wouldn't be trying to sell it to you. So if you like hot sauce, if you know someone who likes hot sauce, go track down some El Yucateco. Be warned, uh, most of them are a lot spicier than what you might expect from a typical flavorless uh, Mexican hot sauce, but go check it out, El Yucateco. You can find it at most major grocery stores. You can get it on Amazon, all the major uh, places that would sell such things. We also always want to tell you that we are a Podbelly original. We are a member of the Podbelly network, and you can go to podbelly.com to find out information about how to podcast, tips and tricks, a directory of shows that you yourself can link your own podcast to, etc., um, so that you can get in on the Podbelly magic. And as always, uh, you can visit us at patreon.com slash mindframepodcast. If you like the regular episodes that drop every week where I narrate the story, um, then you will definitely love the sit-down episodes where we sit down and talk about what's happening in the story, what mysteries have been revealed, what's what's what, who's who, and try to tie some of the, the narrative together. So um, that's only a benefit you get from being a patron, so do consider joining patreon.com to check that out. So as I said, we're about to embark upon Chapter 15, where we last left Grim Bolivar. Um, he was at home and drinking, and he was a little bit upset about the fact that um, the maid had just come to clean his quarters at their lavish home of Prospect, and he was informed that she is actually very young and that she was haggard and eaten up by WorldGov and sort of spit out and rescued by Elise. And uh, we, we pick back up just a few minutes after that, actually. He was leaving to go find his brother, and that tends to be right where we'll find him when we start. So please enjoy Chapter 15 of Mindframe. Chapter 15, Grim Bolivar, 2136. The elevator door opened to Prospect's famous ballroom. Once, at a lavish New Year's party, Grim mused that this would be an important spot in the history of nightlife. The Moulin Rouge, the Cotton Club, Studio 54, and Prospect's ballroom. They would each date stamp their era, faded photos and low-resolution video summoning ghosts of past parties, dazzling women, devilish men, the best band of the era playing the best songs. In the timeline of Bacchanalia, this was the latest house of worship. Tonight, most of the space was empty, just a well-polished marble floor. Tables and chairs were stacked in the corner and covered in tarps. In the center, however, Life sprouted from the small seeds of a party. The ceiling lights shined in a single cone, making the space look like a darkened arena where a prize fight was about to happen. There, in the middle, was a scattering of tables, wet with drink and food. Empty bottles loitered on the ground, and a small jazz trio was playing danceable bebop. Grimm should have been able to name the standard they were playing, but he couldn't. Three dozen people huddled in the light at the center like strange, eyeless worms that can't live outside the heat vents at the ocean's floor. They danced, groped, drank, and kissed, 
They partied, a term Grimm hated the sound of for its juvenile trappings. All of them were young save a governor who was in attendance. The massive windows overlooking the blackness of the Pacific Ocean at midnight reflected the images of the revelers back upon themselves. And Grimm suspected that was the main attraction for this set of people. Not merely partying, but partying and being able to watch themselves do it. Grimm's brother Yale was being propped up by two of the lovely house ladies, Jenna and Marie, two courtesans who Grimm had befriended in the past year. Yale's arms were outstretched, one over each beautiful girl, as if he were crucified by Bacchus. Jenna, the blonde, held Yale's cane and a champagne flute filled with wine and strawberries. It wasn't an accident, Grimm knew. Jenna wore lipstick and a dress that matched the berry perfectly, so that was her side. Yale dexterously managed to grab a berry from the glass and feed it to Marie, a shapely brunette in a blue sequin gown and seductively high heels. When Yale saw Grimm, he came even more alive. Yale pushed the two ladies into the waiting arms of a young man, Advocate Wong Ho's son, but Grimm couldn't remember his first name, and hopped up on the nearest table. Jenna handed him his cane, a fine wooden thing stained the color of a single malt scotch and topped with a platinum handle. Ladies and gentlemen of the Prospect Ballroom, I present to you a most rare and invigorating sight, yelled Yale, his voice affecting that of a nasal carnival barker from the 1920s. Behold the one, the only, Graham Bolivar! As he said Grimm's name, Yale swung his cane like a golf club, striking the floral arrangement on the table and sending a firework of colorful petals bursting in the air. The jazz band's trumpet issued a fanfare, and the house ladies cheered. It was a perfect image of Yale. As Grimm had descended the elevator, he was picturing Yale in party mode, and this was it, pure and undistilled. Yale on a table, surrounded with bottles and glasses as if they were small buildings and he a grand skyscraper or a marble monument. He wore a black suit tonight, shark skin with yellow pinstripes and a sharp red tie. His bald head was as freshly shorn and as polished as the Carrara marble that enshrined the entire party. The table swayed as if it would collapse, but it held true. Only Yale's years behind a bottle and expertise at taking center stage must have given him the requisite balance. Posing on the tabletop would have been hard for anyone to pull off, but with Yale's leg, it was a miracle of hedonism. Evening, Grim, Jenna called from across the room. Welcome to the party, Grim, purred a young blonde man he hadn't met yet. Or had. He tried his best to remember them all by name, learn something about them, talk to them as human beings, not people who were forced to whore themselves to grant an academy permit to some family member somewhere. Though to be fair, many of them loved to be courtesans, to drink fine wine, eat fine foods, wear fine clothes, things virtually no one on earth got to do all for the price of faking an orgasm or two for people who had been upvoted enough to become important. The captain who Grimm met at the plaza earlier was there, lips wrapped around a bottle of champagne, arms wrapped around two of Prospect's young boys. Grimm recognized almost everyone who was visiting Prospect this evening. They had likely come for a dinner or a late afternoon meeting and were then all corralled into a room together to drink and have fun. The guest list wouldn't have been random, Yale selected exactly who would be here, what conversations would come up, what laws would be discussed, who would leave with whose contact information. This particular group of partiers tended to be young, 
Many were the children of prominent officers and administrators instead of the officials themselves. Grimm saw a room full of privileged 20-somethings, a room of people who would only ever get an upvote, would never set foot in a work camp unless it was for a photo opportunity or as management on their climb up the ladder of command. On the short elevator ride down, Grimm had doubted his purpose. Maybe he'd just have a drink and go back upstairs. But seeing these kids, in contrast to Beth, the used-up maid who just cleaned his apartment, comparing these spoiled brats to Sophie Arnez, the girl about to be sent to a camp for merely dating Hugo, the deviant, his resolve was renewed. This was a room full of young men just like his nephew Nathaniel, the princes of an invisible monarchy. Yet somewhere, people starved and worked almost to death in the name of world government. Nathaniel was in fact there and dutifully helped his father Yale dismount the table. And then Grimm's nephew continued his conversation with the advocate's son. Not even a pause. Pure politics here. Nathaniel as much a whore as the young boys and girls ready to give sexual pleasure to the party goers. That was the nature of the Bolivar family. Whore yourself for some slight gain. Grimm wanted to translate that into Latin and put it on a family crest that would hang through Prospect's majestic hallways. Yale crossed the ballroom, his cane tapping with his step, crisp as seltzer water against the stone floor. He met Grimm halfway between the elevator and the party, a place distant from the activity, a place masked by dim illumination and a peppy jazz tune that struck up. Grimm's brother was leaning on his cane far more than normal. That little stunt with the table took its toll. Grimm doubted anyone else here would have noticed the slight grimace and the lag of the leg that his brother was hiding as he walked. What brings you from your tower this evening, little brother? I trust we didn't interrupt your studies. Nah, Grimm answered. I interrupted him just fine on my own. I wanted to tell you that I'm heading to the plaza to give out an academy permit. Oh? A woman approached me there in the bookstore, pleading and crying over a daughter being sent to a camp because her boyfriend, who was found deviant. Elise vouched for her. She's supposed to have hot shit scores and would be a fast-track naval pilot if not for this indiscretion. Well, I must admit I'm pleased to see you taking an interest in the daily comings and goings again. Is this a thing? Are you back? Not at all, brother. I figured. Worth a shot, Yale said with a wink. Grimm found winks to be the ultimate fraud in facial expressions, but Yale could sure as hell sell one. What's our take on the permit? The closer we get to the lariat opening, the more expensive those things become. Grimm nodded and caught the reflection of him and his brother in the floor-to-ceiling windows. He loomed over his brother's smaller frame, though he always tried not to. It was poor form. Without taking his eyes off of Grimm, Yale pointed to the window with a hand shaped like a pistol. He pulled the trigger at Grimm's reflection. His brother was a master of both worlds, light and shadow, the mirror, and its reflection. Grimm finally said, One, a naval pilot in four years who's loyal to us. Two, Elise will finally shut the fuck up about it. And three, to be selfishly honest, I'll get first pick at books on the hard-to-find list when they land at the Plaza Bookstore because I saved the manager's daughter. There he is. I knew the Bolivar could still come out of him. Yale yipped and stood tall on his toes, reaching behind Grimm's head to pull it down. Grimm bent slightly, and Yale kissed him on the forehead and then on the cheek. Their father used to kiss them, even when they were adults. Grimm never took to the feel of another man's mouth on his face, even his father or his brother. But Yale was a kisser. 
Yale continued, but first, take a bottle and take a woman and head back up the elevator, Grim. Nothing shines light on sin more than its own reflection, and you are holding a mirror of chastity up to this party. They need to see you revel. We have a governor, several prominent children, and a couple of rising stars from the Navy and the GPF in attendance. Yale hugged Grimm for support more than affection and swept to each person with his cane as he mentioned them. The plaza closes when we say the plaza closes, Yale interrupted. I'll have someone call in and keep it open for you. And I know how you get. You don't need to have an all-night orgy, little brother. Just have one drink with the governor, pour half of it in a floral arrangement before you get a buzz, and take a girl with you on your way down to the parking structure. Everyone will think you're up to no good and sneaking away with her. That'll make their own perversion feel less perverted, and everyone wins. Plus, I think Jenna really likes you. They'd moved to the party's immediate light radius by that point, and the final lines, Jenna really likes you, were the first that the party might have been able to hear. Grim scanned to see if Jenna heard it, and she had ducked her head down to avoid eye contact. Yes, she had. And yes, apparently, she did. Grim poured himself a smile and shook hands with Governor Jean Manjou. Like most administrators and military officers in Southern California, the governor was of Chinese ancestry. He was the oldest person in attendance by far, in his early 60s. The governor was short compared to most North Americans, and very fit and youthful. His haircut and mustache were efficient and in their proper place, and even here in a revelry, he wore the official gray suit of an administrator with no variations or accoutrements. Jean Menjou ran the governmental functions for all of what used to be the United States of America and some of what used to be Mexico. He was the most powerful man on the continent, with the exception of Yale Bolivar. Grimm had known the governor since he was merely a political assistant to the then assistant governor. Grimm's father had groomed the politician to this position of power, and Yale kept on grooming him to perhaps be an advocate one day. Grimm, the governor said, shaking his hand, it is damn fine to see you. You rarely grace our presence at these little soirees. Family business, Jean Min, you know how it goes. How's Meijing? I haven't seen her since the World Vote Anniversary Ball two years ago. No, it has not been two years. The governor seemed to count back through time and shrug it off. Meijing is fine. Fine. You know that woman somehow gets better looking and more soul-crushing in equal parts as she ages. Just the woman a politician needs, Grimm said. John Min laughed, as did Marie, who was now on the governor's arm, helping him light a cigar. So true, Grimm, so true. But I need some advice from you, the governor said, placing one hand on Grimm's shoulder as he held his cigar with the other and sucked to fan the flame. I'm due to fly to the Lariat for some photo ops in a month. Big trip, Grimm made himself sound impressed. Yes, well, they say six or seven more years and she'll open up. I wanted to fly there and meet with the Commodore and be able to come back and tell people what's really going on. It quells the deviant behavior to be reminded of what miracles are going to come out of that thing when it opens. The spoils of a hundred years of a united earth working toward one singular goal. The Lariat closes. You already have my vote, John Min, Grimm said, hamming it up. The governor loved it. He blew out a lung full of upvoted tobacco smoke and laughed. Behind his cigar fog, the governor said, Right, right. I'm not here to sell you. I'm here to get your advice. When I take a trip like that, it's the only chance I ever had to read. I'd like to kill off a novel on the way there and another one on the way back. 
Yale tells me you're the man to ask, especially for good books that survive the unfortunate purges of the World Vote War. What do you like? Something American. You know I'm not native to this area, and I'd like to get a better idea of what the United States was like before the World Vote. Nothing too controversial. I don't want it to get me in trouble with my wife or the voters. I'd say... Catch-22 for the way there. No politician can hope to understand pre-vote bureaucracy without it. And something by Don DeLillo for the way home. His work isn't fiction so much as it's a time machine that pulls you back to the United States before the war. White noise, or perhaps Libra, though the latter does deal with the assassination of a politician. President Kennedy. I'll get you a copy of them before you leave tonight. Yale cut in and said, Governor, my good friend Jenna was just saying she didn't have anyone to dance with. Yale was being gracious and letting Grimm escape. Grimm finished some of his champagne while the governor danced and looked like a horny old fool, his face buried in the bosoms of a curvy American woman almost a foot taller than he was. After a few more minutes, Grimm headed to the elevator after asking Marie to come with him. She graciously accepted, and in the elevator, she moved close to him. I wanted to rescue you from that scene, Marie. It looked awful in there. I couldn't leave in good conscience without helping someone else escape too. Take the night for yourself. Marie suddenly looked tired, the cosmetics of posture sloughing off of her in the elevator floor. She took off her shoes and slung them both over her shoulder in one hand by the ankle strap. Oh my God, thank you, Graham, she said, kissing him on the cheek, laughing, and then wiping off the lipstick from his face with a freshly licked thumb. Governor Zhu is a complete fucking pervert, I swear he was a deviant prison guard in his previous life. He gropes me like he's looking for contraband. The elevator opened in the garage. Grim disembarked and Marie pushed a button to go back up to the higher levels of prospect. You'd better be heading to your apartment up there. I am, trust me. I am not going back to that party. I usually love to party with Yale, but not when the perv of the people is around. Did you just make that up? Grim laughed. No, that's what we all call him. Night, Marie, Grimm said as he disembarked the elevator car. I owe you one, Marie said and blew him a kiss, burgundy lips hovering over cobalt nail polish as the door slid shut. Grimm headed to the escort station, where a few drivers, guards, and a concierge sat drinking coffee near a space heater, using the basics of old-world technology to fend off the chill ocean air of Southern California. The concierge was a tall man who wore efficiency like a superhero wore a cape, he stood and met Grimm near the elevator. He shook hands with Grimm as he hugged him, and at the same time slipped something into Grimm's inside jacket pocket. He said Grimm, and smiled a knowing smile to Grimm, who didn't need to feel in there to know he was just slipped the academy permit. Good evening, Benson. And to you, sir. Will there be anything else you might need before you leave? Yes, actually, Grimm said, and arranged for Benson to send a package to the governor's car. It contained the books Grimm had in mind, plus a copy of the new edition of Accounts of a Noble Resistance, with the revised forward as a kindness, and a copy of The Crying of Lot 49, just to fuck with his head. Finally, he added a box of cigars the governor was currently smoking in the ballroom. He then asked for a car, fought the concierge and guards away, and drove himself into the night, headed back to the plaza to change someone's life. As Grimm approached the plaza, the sky grew alive with electricity. Arcs of silent lightning and pure blue-white energy cascaded to and from a central point in the sky above the shopping center. The Mo Yu had powered up. 
Instead of the innocent blob of amorphous metal apertures that it normally looked like when powered down, it looked like the hell blaze of a hurricane. Hundreds of arcs of pure electricity swarming around the Mo-Yu, licking the ground harmlessly, waiting for them to find a lance or a vehicle or a shield that needed power. The energy was impressive, but currently harmless. Once it was placed to a weaponized setting, a Mo-Yu's energy became less innocent and would tear cars and homes and people in half, if so directed. The lightning turned into a thousand whips that could melt glass and slice through an engine block. In the war, they primarily floated above platoons of troops, powering their static shielding and their lances, but they could shed or add parts of another Mo-Yu to become bulkier or smaller. They could separate or split in four and be almost as deadly but cover more ground and power more troops. The smallest shape he'd ever seen one hold, roughly the size of a passenger car, could still power a small platoon. A more large Mo-Yu, made of a dozen which had come together, could sink a United States aircraft carrier, swat down attack jets, and transform a platoon of old-world battle tanks into dozens of red-hot tombs of self-detonating munitions and immolated soldiers entombed inside of them. Seeing one powered up was rare and disturbingly beautiful. Grimm's mind was seduced by the patterns, activated on an animal level like it was ocean waves or a bonfire or any purely chaotic shape as it emerged. His phone rang, so he told the car to park at the plaza, letting go of the wheel. The car sped up and took a side street which Grimm wouldn't have thought to turn down as he looked at his wrist. The freckles there had spelled out Plaza Concierge in a glowing aqua color, similar to that of the dashboard lights. He tapped his wrist and said, Grim Bolivar. Mr. Bolivar, this is Glenn Hayward, the night concierge at the plaza. Good evening, Mr. Hayward. Good evening to you, sir. Your staff phoned ahead and said you'd be coming to the plaza this evening, and I wanted to see if I could do anything for you. We closed 20 minutes ago, so we aren't open to the general public, but we can, of course, grant you admittance. I know you were here earlier in the day, and I wanted to make sure you didn't leave something here or... No... Nothing of the sort. I'm coming to try to speak to the manager of the bookstore. Would you know if they're still in? I'm checking right now, sir. Hayward paused. The car turned a corner. The Mo-Yu glowed in the night like a second hostile moon. It appears they're still here performing their closing duties. Would you like me to let them know you're on your way? No, thank you. I would very much like to assign an escort to you, Mr. Bolivar. I should be fine on my own, Mr. Hayward. Unless, of course, there is a specific and imminent reason the Mo-Yu is alive this evening. Well, yes, sir. You. The GPF activated the squid as soon as we heard you were coming. They have information that a deviant meeting is supposed to occur somewhere in San Pedro tonight, and they didn't want any harm to come to a customer and citizen as important as you. Well, all this for little old me, huh? I'm fine. I'd like you to tell my car where to park for the sake of your security detail. I can send you its access information. That would be appreciated, sir. We'll monitor your arrival and departure, and we hope you have a pleasant experience at the plaza. Would you like me to have a kitchen stay open or retain a barista or a bartender for the evening? No, thank you. I'll be fine. Just the purveyor of books. Have a good evening, Mr. Bolivar. You too, Grimm said, and sent the access code to Mr. Hayward by phone. The car circled the parking lot, made a decision, and headed to an entrance Grimm wouldn't have used. It parked at the curb immediately in front of the door, ignoring the painted no-parking signs. Six members of the global police force were on the sidewalk or patrolling the lot near Grimm's car. 
Their lances were charged, crackling a miniature version of the Mo Yu's electric discharge. They wore full facial armor and masks, and the black of their torsion skirts seemed to pulse and writhe as the distortion of the static shield surrounded them. They were ready for battle. One of them, with a powered down lance, opened the car door for Grimm, walked him to a set of doors into the plaza, and opened them, reporting facts to his network with a voice muffled by a bulletproof mask. Grimm entered the warm space of the plaza. It was silent and dark. The music that normally filled the air had gone quiet, as the band must have stopped playing not long ago. Grimm was surprised, and, he had to admit, a slight bit disappointed, that Haywood didn't have them keep playing. Once indoors, Grimm oriented himself and found that he was closer to the bookstore than he thought he would be. He walked through the still of the place. The workers were in each shop, running vacuums, cleaning glass doors, refolding and restocking shirts and shelves. He stopped at the bookstore and saw the man who was there earlier working hard to close up. The woman who begged for her daughter's life was toward the back, organizing books that had been messed up throughout the day. Her arms were heavy, her eyes red from crying. Grim walked up to the man, a plain-looking guy in his mid-twenties with the eternal look of a mind bogged down with too many book smarts to do well in a conversation or know the rules to any drinking game. Grim handed the man an oversized envelope embossed with the B of the Bolivar family. It was the envelope slipped to him by Benson. Grim said, Will you make sure this gets to Sophie Arnez? I'd like it to be somewhat covert, if you would. I don't like a scene. The worker shrunk back from Grimm. Grimm realized he had intimidated him, which he often did unintentionally, and more often did intentionally. The employee looked at the envelope for a long beat, his eyes wide and wet. He grasped Grimm's hand in his and pulled it to his lips. The man kissed the back of Grimm's hand. It was an uncomfortable feeling, the stubble and the lips of a man, a stranger, pressing on Grimm's knuckles. He tried to remain gracious, but found himself pulling his hand away as if he'd stuck it in a microwave oven. This must be what Yale's life was like, the endless thank yous, the ring being kissed. Grimm exited the store, and his peripheral vision, he saw the man sprint to the back of the shop. A beat later, he heard the mother issue a squeal of delight, then another from the mail worker. He heard laughter and pictured an embrace. Whoever the hell Sophie Arnez was, Grimm had just changed her destiny. Instead of a broken waif of a woman eking out a life on the bottom step of a ladder to the lariat, Sophie would be a pilot or a navigator or some naval sort. It took nothing and a life was reordered, a pathway made clear of brambles. This was the power of the Bolivar family, a power that Grimm always suspected, a power he went to street war for and defended and lived off of, but not one he'd ever exercised for someone else. He had to admit, it felt good. And then Elise popped into his head. She'd be getting a call from Mother Arnez soon to thank her, and she'd have won this little game of hers. Out of habit, Grimm found that he'd walked to the art store, which was shuttered and dark. Too bad. He had planned to go straight to his car, but found himself here instead, suddenly wishing he could talk to Penelope, Penny, before he went home. He had just done a good thing, and his grandmother's painting had arrived in his rooms before he started drinking and listening to Mozart earlier. He would like to have been able to share some joy with Penny, especially since, as his own nickname implied, joy was something Grimm seldom felt. 
He heard the doors leading out of the plaza shut, and he quickened his pace to see out the glass. There was a line of about 20 people boarding the train, and Penny was among them. Grim jogged to catch up, slid out the doors, where a masked GPF trooper nodded at him and reported Grim's position to the network. The train was a massive, above-ground thing that shot through San Pedro and all of Los Angeles on great stilts. There were no tracks, just the pylons that held it all aloft somehow, with advanced tricks of magnetism. This one was at least a dozen cars long, and Grim jumped through a door as it automatically shut itself. There was a loud ping to indicate departure, and a lurch, and the train was underway. Grim felt his wrist tickle and looked down to see a travel chit get spent automatically since he boarded the train. It was good for a month, it said. The train was surprisingly full for being so late in the evening, and Grim looked for Penny. He had no idea what he was doing, why he'd boarded this train. No, that wasn't true. Genuine company. That's why he boarded. He wanted company who wasn't a member of his family and wasn't on the payroll, even if just for a brief chat, a hello, a smile, or a glance. The train shuffled away from the plaza and away from the harsh glow of the Mo-Yu. It shuffled away from Grimm's car and from the global police force and from Mr. Hayward's protective surveillance as it slid into the unknown night in the hills of San Pedro in the intoxicating wake of Penelope, the art dealer. And thus we close the latest chapter of Grim Bolivar. As Brent just said before we recorded this outro, it seems that everybody's chasing their love interest. And as I said, so it would seem. Um, as always, we urge you to go to mindframepodcast.com and check out our website. We've got some cool stuff in the merch store. If you like uh, the show, we've got really, really cool uh, coffee mugs and T-shirts and everything you can think of. We've also got other fiction. If you're liking the story, you might like my novel 181 Pine, which is a totally different universe, but another piece of science fiction. And you might like the works of Zach Smith, who does the sit downs with me. Um, all of his works are posted there as well. Um, we are, as we always tell you, a member of the Podbelly Network and a Podbelly Original. If you go to podbelly.com, you can find such shows as Project Reclamation and Robots for Eyes. They're both uh, great shows that are worthy of a download. So uh, give them a like, give them a download, give them some love and see what they have to offer. Um, you might also want to check out our other podcast, the Sofa King podcast, uh, which is myself and Brent and uh, Brad Taylor. And we do some research and do a very not safe for work dig down various topics that our listeners uh, suggest to us. And then Brad also has a Magic the Gathering podcast called Brewing the 99. And you might want to check that out as well. As always, we want to thank El Yucateco um, Hot Sauce for being our primary sponsor. If you love hot food, you will love El Yucateco. Um, I know you can find it at a, at a local uh, Mexican food grocery, but you can probably also find it at a major grocery, Walmart, Target, etc. They might not have the full spread of flavors, but uh, most of them will have it. And you can always find it online, um, order it, and uh, enjoy the deliciousness that is El Yucateco. And again, we don't just say it because we're paid to. We say it because we genuinely love it and want to spread the, the gospel of El Yucateco. Um, if you want to join us on social media, 
You can find us on any of the platforms. If you like, if you subscribe, if you share, it really means a lot to us. It really helps the show grow in ways that you can't imagine. Just one simple share might push three or four more people to find us. Um, and then that just has an exponential effect. Uh, we really appreciate it and it really, really keeps things bouncing. So you can find us on Facebook. We've got a really cool group that has some interesting discussions, a place where you can post questions for the uh, sit down episodes. Um, good place to bounce ideas off of each other. But on Facebook, we are Mindframe Podcast. On Instagram, we are The Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are The Mindframe Pod. And on Reddit, we are r slash Mindframe Podcast. So thanks as always for giving us uh, your time. We know there's a lot of podcasts out there to choose from. And we love the fact that you chose us. And as always, remember, the Lariat is closing.